And so absolutely, nothing is an overnight success. Things take time and commitment and effort and persistence. And above all, I think people have to understand that whatever path you take, you have to be able to adjust and shift before it's too late. Welcome into the Free Retiree Show, your go-to podcast for your money, your career, where we help you avoid the big mistakes and where we learn from folks that have done amazing things. I'm your host, wealth manager, Lee Michael Murphy, and I'm alongside the man of Silicon Valley, interview coach, career mentor, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? Happy Friday. And Silicon Valley's favorite attorney, Matthew McElroy. For today's discussion topic, we're going to be doing a business and thought leader edition of our show. And for today's episode, we have a great one. We are excited to have Maria Brito on our podcast. Maria is an award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator. And guys, she has a phenomenal story. Serge, you're going to love this. She is a fellow Venezuelan. That's what, when I said wait earlier, I was like, wait a second. She's from Venezuela. It's amazing. Yeah, I know how you. That's guys all that matters. All I know matters. how you get excited about your Venezuela connection. So you, this is going to be a great one. There's not that uh, many of us. Yeah, I know you guys are a special breed for sure. <laughs> so she immigrated from Venezuela and she became a Harvard graduate. So just a really cool story. And she worked in for many years as a successful corporate attorney. And even though she had attained a very high level of success in corporate America, she didn't feel like she was doing what she was extremely passionate about. So she decided to pursue her passion, which was her love of art. And in 2009, she set out to do this journey and grew a seven-figure art advisory company. And check this out, guys. She has worked for Fortune 500 CEOs, musicians, such as Sean P. Diddy Combs, Gwyneth Paltrow. She's been selected by Complex Magazine as one of the top 20 power players in the art world. In 2019, she hosted The C-Files with Maria Brito, a TV streaming series on PBS uh, for their new station, All Arts. And she's got plenty of experience in the NFT space. So a lot of our listeners have been asking, what's an NFT? What does it play in the future? So we're going to be talking about that. But her publications that she's written for, Entrepreneurial Magazine, Huffington Post, Forbes, Artnet, the Gulf Coast Journal of Literature for Fine Arts from the University of Houston, Texas. And this is going to be a great one. I know there's just so many interesting topics here, but you know, to start, Matthew, NFTs, I know you're very curious about this space. Like, Where do you see NFTs and its use cases? I know that's something that you've been uh, taking a class on. And uh, I want you to share like what your feelings are in that space. Yeah. I mean, I think NFTs are just, they're just starting, right? I think it's going to be the future. And it's just, it's cool because I think people, they see it with all these, I don't even know what they're called, like the Board 8 Yacht Club and all these different types of like digital art that it's kind of going right now. But there's really so many other applications to it. I mean, I've heard about it being used for like concert ticket. One thing I, I deal with a lot of real estate stuff. I, I think an NFT would be perfect for somebody's grant deed for their home. I mean, I, why not? Right. And, and there's just so many uses for it. I think we're going to see a lot more of it in the future. Yeah. So that's going to be a great topic. And, and lastly, the other thing that Maria talks about is she helps organizations be more creative. So 
She's got three very uncreative guys on this podcast, hoping that she can <laughs> share. Speak for yourself, please. Speak for yourself. <laughs> speak for all of us. <laughs> I know you guys are very closely, so let's not take this. So see if she can help get us that inner creativity, help us channel that, because uh, that's, that's something we can all work on. So we're going to take a quick break. Before we do so, make sure you smash that like button. Share us. Share us with someone that's going on a long drive. They would enjoy hearing to the Free Retiree Show. We appreciate all your love and support. We're going to take a quick break. But when we are back, we're sitting down with Maria Brito. Welcome back into the Free Retiree Show. We're sitting down with Maria Brito. Maria, how are you doing this morning? Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great and excited to dive in all the things that you mentioned. So (laughs) to start, we heard that you work with Sean P. Diddy Combs. And I'm just wondering, his style of art, I mean, I'm thinking a lot of naked women and leopard print. Is that wrong (laughs) or right? No, it's it's very (laughs) wrong. When Poff and I started working together was about 11 years ago or 10 years ago, and he had found me through a common friend and he said to me look uh, i want you i want to i want you to come to my office and we should talk about collecting seriously and uh, he told me i know all these people and i know all these galleries and artists but really i think that everybody sort of tried to trick me i really need someone who can feel through all this information and artists and give me like the nitty gritty of what's going on in the art market, who's acquiring, who's buying, who are the hot artists. If you think it's a good investment, I'm buying things for me, but I also want them to be assets for my kids. I think it's the right thing to do. I'm not selling, I'm not speculating and he's never done actually. And so actually the, when I started working with him, really, he didn't really have a collection and it's, he is a very interesting man, as you all know, who favors a lot of things that have to do with his upbringing, like street art in New York. And he also likes Black artists, but not exclusively. He has acquired a lot of female artists, too, who are white or Asian. He loves things that are stark contrast of black and white, like Keith Haring and things like that. So he's got a very elevated taste that I have helped shape throughout the years and uh, i'm glad that he now enjoys a really robust art collection that represents who he is as a person and as a musician and as an accomplished entrepreneur and it's, it's very elegant actually his collection is very elegant so no naked women and no no <laughs> leopards no leopards and no maybacks i love how you just call him puff like he seems like you know him really well it's been awesome. too many years. I mean, it's been too many years. So it's like we do have that kind of trust at this point. It's not that he's my best friend. I actually respect him tremendously. And I think it's a great thing that I, we work at a distance. You know what I mean? It's like I don't have to be a part of his entourage. And that actually makes the relationship to be in a very good place all the time. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that interesting uh, piece right there. That was phenomenal. The job of an art dealer. Like, can you give us a little insight into like what you're doing in that space? And then just tell the, I gave you a good intro, but why don't you tell the listeners in your own words about what you're doing? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are a lot of differences in what people do in the art business, right? I am an advisor. And what it means is that I am kind of I'm the ears and the eyes of these collectors who asked me to go out to all the galleries and all the art fairs and the artist studios and to find out what's happening, what's worth it, who's selling what that they may be missing in their collections or it's an opportunity that they feel that brings a lot of financial gains into what they're acquiring for less than they would have found otherwise. Things like that, right? But the gallerists who own galleries, right, have a very similar role, except they only represent the people that they work with in that gallery. I have the entire world in the entire you know, universe for me to choose and pick from. So I go and I negotiate the deals from the galleries with my clients, or I also work with other collectors who want to sell something that my client wants. So it's a little bit like a broker, but it's it does have a lot more of depth of work and research. And I have to be constantly dialed in the market and what's happening so that I can provide value to my clients. And it's also about spotting the next talents, right? Because you already know that Basquiat is Basquiat. And you if you're going to go buy one, it's a $20 million thing, right? So there's no discovery there. You already know who Basquiat, he's dead. And if you want one, I can help you get one, but it's not a discovery. But if I find the next Basquiat and you pay 10,000 bucks for it and Two years from now is 200,000. That is my sweet spot. And it has been for many years. And that's why I always get these amazing clients who are back, not only building collections for themselves, but also backing up the careers of these young artists who are very promising. And I'm not Bernie Madoff. I'm not going to tell you, yes, everything is going to go up 300% because I'll be lying to you. And I have a uh, fiduciary duty and a responsibility, right? With like my clients to tell them the truth all the time. But I do have a track record of spotting really good talent early on. First, I have, you know, particular I guess, intuitive aesthetic or intuitive at a gut feeling of things. And also I have excellent relationships with like galleries who work with young artists. And because of that, they always come to me to offer me because right now the market is extraordinarily hot. Like you would have never imagined when I started this business 13 years ago, I would have never thought I was going to be this busy and that the market was going to get as hot as it is. And it's a combination of things. It's like a lot of people who at some point thought they didn't have access. They found the access through Instagram or they found the access through online art fairs, which all started to happen since the pandemic hit. And also a lot of people made a lot of money in tech and a lot of people also made a lot of money exchanging crypto. So all these things have fueled an insanity in the market where you have to be almost like begging this galleries to sell you the work because the long, there is more demand than supply because there is a certain amount of paintings or whatever this artist is making that you can get, right? And But the, the people who want it are so many. So there is always what I provide to is access because there is a battle for getting these things. So that's pretty much like, that's the, the main part of my business is that, and I see it again, it's like, uh, it's almost like having a financial advisor and, and also a broker, right? Because I'm having this wearing all these different hats. And once this collections go inside my, 
clients' homes, I also help them curate them and rotate them. A lot of them have storages. So every four months, they change the whole collection because they have 500 paintings in a storage. So they cannot display them all, no matter how many houses they have. And so it's a very cool and uh, dynamic and interesting job that keeps me on my toes too, because I'm telling you, it's always changing and I have to change with it all the time. So, so how did you get into art? Where did you get your, like, your eye for you know, art? When I was a child, I was, my parents believed in the cultivation of my eyes and my you know, spirit with art, but it was not a career, right? Like I couldn't dedicate myself to be an artist or what I wanted to be was a performer and a singer. And I had enormous talent, but it was like, we are so glad that you have all that, but in this house, you're only an attorney, a doctor, or like a dependable career. My, my parents also thought everything else was not decent, right? Like that's not decent. You have to do something decent, which is laughable if you think about it. But okay, fine. So I grew up with all this amazing activities where I go into museums, go, go into artist studios, go into galleries. At that time, me growing up in Venezuela, it was still a country. Right now, I don't know what it is, right? But back then, we did have a ton of uh, cultural institutions and opportunities to do things that were incredibly interesting and cultivating. And we were not rich at all, but every surplus, my parents put it into trips. So let's go to New York. Let's go. They sent me to Europe, like when I was 15 on my own. And it was like, every little cent was for me to go on trips and to cultivate myself and to learn things. I didn't really have anything fancy I didn't have I didn't live in a fancy place I didn't have fancy clothes I didn't have anything that represented anything fancy but man there was a trip always waiting for me and so that was my curiosity and desire to that was my betterment but I was also fascinated because they had given me that opportunity and so I kept cultivating it on my own after I moved to the States and I went to Harvard Law and I graduated and I believed that was the path. I was very young to actually had the experience to know that was not right for me, but I also had been through a process of brainwashing that had lasted for decades, right? And so once I was there, I was like grateful. It was a phenomenal opportunity. I was like bench me. I mean, it's incredible. And it was difficult. And I graduated. I moved to New York and I started going to galleries in my spare time and meeting people and shaking hands and buying things for myself very young. Not Nothing was expensive, but I had already that little bug inside of me that I wanted to keep seeing artists and keep acquiring things and keep myself in that loop in a way. And when I, so I practiced law for about nine years and it was corporate law. I, I worked in small and medium and large law firms because I was always thinking the next one is going to be better, right? But it's, it was not true. It was always worse and worse. It just was horrific, right? And so I got pregnant with my first child and that allowed me to think what I wanted to do with my life because I was miserable and I had already seen it all, right? I had, I said, I'm not going to go. Yeah, I already saw this medium, the small, the large, the international, the Wall Street one that was like the last law firm where I worked for. I love the opportunities they gave me. I was the only non-American person and probably like one out of four people of color, honestly. Like, and 
look, there's nothing wrong with it, right? These people, these attorneys were incredible as attorneys, right? And as people too, they were very kind to me. There was nothing wrong with fundamentally, right? The problem is that that did not do anything for me and I hated it. I hated the hours. I hated what I was doing. And I was always thinking there's got to be something better for me than this. And so that the, the, the catalyst was like getting pregnant and thinking about what am I going to do with my life when this child comes, because I'm never going to see him again. Right. And I am not going to have fulfillment for the rest of my life. I got to get out of here sooner rather than later. So I started considering what is it that I can do? And when you're in that phase, you put a lot of things in front of you and, and you tend to also you tend to be too much in your head and things get big, like all the risks and the bad things that can happen. And what if I never am able to make money again? And what if like the pain of staying in that job was so big that it was bigger than all the uncertainties and all the risks that I was taking. So that was actually my decision-making process after one year agonizing, right? Because I got pregnant nine months and then I had the baby. And then I went back after my maternity leave to do all these things I hated in an environment I hated. And so I was like, okay, I've been thinking about this for a year, actually for longer, but seriously for a year. And I still feel that the pain of staying here and losing my youth and life in this place is worse than taking a chance. So what did I do to make and to build this business or how did I come to the conclusion? Right. I had already sort of like I, I had sent my resume to galleries and also to a couple of fashion places. And I realized when I was like, well, I can do this myself. I am smarter than these people, actually. This is what I actually crossed my mind. I hope they don't remember or listen to this, right? Because I was like, I'm better. Sorry, but I am. And, and why is that? And it's not that I'm superior. It's that as an outsider, I was paying attention to all the blind spots that they were not paying attention to. Because once you're in an industry for too long, you actually start developing blind spots. It's normal that once you do something so well and you're somewhere, you have a knowledge that is so ingrained in your brain it's second nature to you and you miss the opportunities. And that's part of the reasons why I wrote my book. And I will talk about that later. Is because people have lost their ability to find opportunities that are in plain sight, but they can't see them anymore. And so when I was taking a look of all, all the things that were happening in the art world, and this was pre-Instagram, Facebook was still very young. Twitter was so, like young. People were not having blogs. I mean, none of this was happening, right? I mean, I'm talking about this was 2008. Um, I said to myself, okay, the people who are doing the job that I wanted to do, which was to be an art advisor and a curator, right? Are not necessarily putting like passion into it or bringing the knowledge, the willingness to share more with the world, like to blog or to post on social media. I don't see that they have any presence. I see that they are very stern and rigid and it's all kind of transactional. And I wanted to make everything around the art world and the buying and selling very alive and very, I, I wanted to make my clients participants and not necessarily just somebody who pays the money, takes the painting and goes away. Right. And with that simple observation, 
I was able to come up with the idea for the website, the business, the mission statement, the copy, etc. I hired a woman who helped me and I hired a web designer and a photographer and whatever. And with that very little thing is how I started the business, right? And so, yes, it was a humongous risk and it was frightening. But once I actually took that step and said to myself, to my family, my husband, et cetera, this is it, is I never looked back. There was no plan B. I had to oh. succeed. You know what I mean? Like there was now I'm not going like once you have that level of pressure, and it is pressure. I'm not going to lie, right? It, it's like a level of pressure to yourself. You have to keep paying the bills. You have to make things happen. You've already left a mid six-figure job and that also had bonuses that were six fi- mid six figures too. The, all the benefits, I've already closed the door for that forever. I don't care, you know? So once you do that and say that to yourself and you announce it to the people you love and care, there was no going back for me. And Did you ever second guess it? No. Yeah, this is interesting timing. I think right now with COVID, this idea of the great res- resignation, right? Like in Silicon Valley, lots of people are contemplating the pros and cons of staying in this, riding this tech bubble out, if it's a bubble, or staying in these different roles, or should they go pursue something they're more passionate about? I'm just curious, like you, it, this didn't happen overnight. Like I know it sounds like you just killed it. I'm sure there were moments where you were like, Yes, this was the right decision, but this is really tough. I think yeah. like when our show, we like to be very realistic. So were there those moments where you it was just super tough? It didn't go perfectly? Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that I was so convinced about my business and that I was never going back, that doesn't mean that I didn't have a lot of setbacks and ups and downs and months where I was like, where's the money? You know what I mean? And so absolutely, nothing is an overnight success. Things take time and commitment and effort and persistence. And above all, I think people have to understand that whatever path you take, whether it is a new job or a new business or a new partnership, or you're going to become a consultant or a freelancer, whatever it is, you have to be able to adjust and shift before it's too late. And what means too late? It means like, okay, you are in foreclosure, right? That's when it's too late. So there are tons of levels before that, right? Like there are levels way before that, right? So do not, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, is it too late? No, it's too late when you get to that level, right? Or you're declaring bankruptcy and you don't want to do that. But I think that the, yes, the the core of, of all these things is that we have been conditioned to think that there are overnight successes. We have been conditioned to think that from step A, to massive wealth and fame and whatever. It's a snap of the fingers. It's a blink of an eye, right? Like if so, but it's not. And I have even heard this from people who ventured into, for example, podcasting as marketing devices. And they're like, I've put 10 out and it didn't, I didn't have 5,000 downloads. I was like, I was like, I'm like, people are really like expecting the road from zero to success to be that short. And I, I'm telling you, like, I mean, there were months where I wasn't really making any money and I had to rely on my savings, rely on my husband. And yeah, and so people are going to be listening and say, I have no husband, I have no savings. Everybody will have always an excuse how to 
protect themselves from taking risks and doing things that they love. There has never been a better time really to start a business. Capital is extremely cheap right now. And in the past, since the pandemic hit, there have been 2.7 million filings of new businesses, according to the Census Bureau and the Small Business Administration. And why is that? First, because people have reconsidered what they wanted to do. The pandemic put things into perspective that they were not thinking about. Some people have lost their jobs and they thought maybe I can do this better. And I am so thrilled to hear that. And the other thing is, you know, capital is cheap. I mean, there are there is money to fund businesses as long as there is a way to prove that the best not pr- you're never going to prove anything but as long as you come with a solid business plan and some sort of guarantee of uh, some sort you're going to be able to access capital right and that is the beauty of living in the united states is that the business of america's business it's this is absolutely the only business of this country's business right like people are always trying to figure out what is the idea that they want to materialize what and so it's not that we are oil expert. It's not that we are commodities. No, this is a country that thrives on ideas, services, and business. And there are tons of other things that can happen and that people can have on the side if they are so afraid of just like quitting their jobs that they can sort of like give them attention. If you give attention to a side project that you want to make a business and you do this two hours a day, at the end of a week, you have 14 hours dedicated to a new business, right? But people don't see it that way. People are like, no, I am going to bench on Netflix for three hours because I deserve it. Because it's the end of the day and I've had such a bad day because I worked five hours from home. And you have to think about these things. And I don't mean to be horrible or like so kind of like not empathetic. I am empathetic. I've been through this pandemic myself. It's been horrible. I've been through all sorts of horrible things. Uh, but I also think that we just can't not be complacent in at times where if you want to see things change, you just can't do the same things that you were doing all the time, right? That, that according to Einstein, that's the definition of insanity. If you're doing the same thing over and over again and you expect different results, you're crazy. You want to do things differently because you want to see a different result, right? So that is kind of like, in a nutshell, my 13 years of overnight success that I started when I was actually 32. So 30, yes, 32 or 33. So I wasn't a child. I wasn't old. But I think you're never going to be as young as you are today. So if you are 65 and you still want to do a business and you still want to do something else, it's the right time. I mean, you immigrated from Venezuela and you're a Harvard graduate. I mean, that's like, we're not really saying that, but I mean, I'm going to say it for you. Like, that's amazing. So we come up with all these excuses in our head of what what's holding us back. We always got a reason, like you said, like it could be money, it could be whatever. But do you think coming from Venezuela... And then coming to the US, do you think that gives you a different perception of the opportunities Absolutely. that are available? Absolutely. I think that you don't take anything for granted to begin with. And uh, you appreciate everything and you go and run with things, right? I mean, you just like, you are 
a combination of a hustler, right? Because we all are in a way that we're pursuing our dreams. And we are also tuned to things that people do not pay attention because they have always been there, right? And this is where I go back to what I was talking about, why we develop so many blind spots when things are sitting in front of our eyes is because we have conditioned our minds to do things over and over again, and they become routine and easy. And obviously, we still want experts who are experts in their industries, but we also want people to be able to be creative and to find different things. So I... I recently talked to someone who is from Brazil and she's a Netflix writer and she's doing fantastically well. And she told me that she came from such a poor background, which was not my case. I was not poor. I was a middle-class person without luxuries, but it was a middle-class. My The food never, we, we never missed food. We had trips, as I said before, but this girl told me something that resonated with me tremendously. She said, I said, how do you come up with ideas to write like all this hit series on Netflix? And she said to me, I don't have an option because the sole thought of me going back to where I grew up in Brazil and it's just chilling. Like it, it gives me the chills all over my body and I just have to deliver what Netflix wants and they are paying an enormous amount of money for that and I'm going to do it. And that's it. And I think part of like that was kind of the the thought that I had on repeat in my mind when I left the law firm is that I don't really have an option. I have to make this happen because the sole thought of going back to an office, no matter what the office was, that office or was the legal department of a company or whatever office, the word office is very frightening to me. So when I thought that if my business was going to fail, I would have had to go back to an office. I literally got such a fire in my ass. I was like, who am I calling? What is happening? I mean, I need to make this happen. I mean, who, what am I selling to who? Let me just put yourself on very limited resources and you will see your creativity and your business flourish. And I also wrote about that in my book. Crises are the best things for creativity because they give you a limited amount of resources, whether it is the resource to be having to be locked down or having to have a restrictive amount of your sphere of movement has been reduced or whether your budget is very small or teams. Like teams have to always be kind of small because the more you put people in the team, the bigger it is, the more confusion and ideas and nothing happens. And as like Jeff Bezos says, he likes his teams to be fed with two pizzas. If they are not fed with two pizzas, the team is too big. I like that. Yeah, good call. So you you mentioned your book. Should we pivot to your book? What's the headline? What's your book about? Well, the book is called How Creativity Rules the World. The subtitle is The Art and Business of Turning Your Ideas into Gold. And it's published by HarperCollins and comes out in March. But please pre-order it now. It's all about how I pivoted my career. And it's all about the observations that I have compiled in the past 13 years from my clients and from successful entrepreneurs and successful artists. And I uh, debunk the myth of the starving artist or the starving creative. There have never been a better time to be 
a creative and you listen, you can be an accountant and you can be creative. And that doesn't mean the accountant is painting on canvases on the weekend. It means the accountant is inventing new processes and new procedures to save money to the company or to do things faster. And if they can patent and sell it even better. Right. But the, the book is a methodology that I developed and it's the same type of methodology that I teach to the companies and the hire me. But it's um, obviously given in a, different way because a book is, is 250 pages and it's profound in the way of how things are explained. But it is, it gives a lot of uh, ideas and tips and it's very actionable. So at the end of each chapter, there is a section with exercises and what people should do, prompts and things like that so that they integrate what they've learned in that chapter into their own lives and see the results. When I have taught this in companies or I also have an online course and I'm giving it away for free for people who pre-order and email the receipt to book at mariabrito.com, what I have seen is that my students and the people in companies really are able to get through this material and end with tremendous breakthroughs. And that's actually the inspiration behind me wanting to write the book is how do I get this to more people? And it's all about how can I give and not what can I get, right? Like it's for me is if this works so well with all those people, it has to work well also for a reader. And people who have gone through this material, again, they have pivoted career, opened new businesses, created new divisions in their companies, figure out ways to stay relevant because part of being creative is being relevant and not sort of like die in the, the business that wasn't able to catch up quote blockbuster and in you know netflix and things like that because they never wanted to pivot they never wanted to catch up with reality so it doesn't matter this book is applicable to anybody in business and it has a very interesting way of putting light on things that are normally your other books on innovation or creativity and the cornerstone of being creative is actually to think differently so i have given so many interesting pieces of data and historical facts that and storytelling is very dynamic there is it's not like boring and dry and it's very dynamic and so i have given so much examples to people and about how people can become more creative and innovative and what is it that they can do themselves to cultivate these habits that I, I think is going to make a difference in the readers. So I'm excited to bring that to the world. I'm excited for the book. Where, what's the website that everyone can get it at? Well, it's actually on Amazon and uh, Barnes and & Noble and it's on Target and Walmart and all the independent bookstores and on Apple. It's widely distributed. Everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. But if you want access to the course, my course, you have to just email the receipt and or the confirmation purchase to book at mariabrito.com. That's the email that it's been checked by my team and you will get access to free access. And that's just through the pre-order phase. The book comes out on March 15th. So if you do that between now and March 15th, you get access to the course. But anyway, if you are listening to this after, then you still can buy the book. Your book, does it touch on NFTs and no. the options that it gives startups? No, it doesn't because it was already written when the whole NFT thing came out. So, so before the NFT explosion kind of came about. <laughs> Yeah. So how, in the whole NFT world, do you kind of promote NFTs for new artists? Is that, or I mean, how, how I do NFTs come into no. your business? They actually, they come into my business as me being an advisor and advising my clients about what to do if they want an NFT. But the truth of the matter is that a lot or most of my clients are 
people who want to live with art in their on their walls, right? And they just want to have the tangible asset. The NFTs are revolutionary, and that's the truth. And the interesting thing is that it was art, the gateway for people to understand or sort of like have the word NFT in their vocabularies or their minds. But you can do an NFT for anything. And so Jack Dorsey had done an NFT for his first tweet that it went, yeah, yeah like it, it was auctioned for a thing like two or three, I don't know, a certain amount of money, maybe 20 million. I don't really know. It was a lot. It yeah, was a lot of money, right? It was millions. Yeah, it was sure. in the millions and it, it, he donated it to charity actually. But the point of an NFT obviously is to have a registration on a ledger that allows you to transact with that asset. And uh, that's much easier to have and it brings issues of authenticity and uh, traceability to a common ledger that never existed before. And so... What is it like? It's this two different assets. One is the NFT and another one is a piece of art. But for the most part, what has been done with the NFTs in this art space and world is to attach the string of numbers that reference and, and give it's like a contract saying you are the owner of this when you have it in your ledger to a piece of art that is digital. So like a JPEG or a video or a, a series of animations like that have been put together. And the genius of this was that Beeple was paying attention. Beeple is an artist from North Carolina. And so he was paying attention to crypto and he was paying attention to the art world. And he was able to have a lot of successes with animations that he was creating for Justin Bieber and J-Lo and I don't know what. And that gave him a lot of impetus that like this guy was not an overnight success. He was successful as a graphic designer and as an animator. And he saw an opportunity when he started learning about crypto that he could also have digital art sold in places like Nifty and the places that actually sell NFTs or auction NFTs. And he was interestingly creating a project for the first 5,000 days is 13 years of his life every day was a frame that he released and that he just took images from the internet that had to do with anything with pop um, you know culture or with politics and he adjusted them or adapted them or intervened them to create his own image and every day was one thing. So when he had 5,000 of them, he put it together and he said, this is my every day's 5,000. People were already following him. He had the brilliancy to connect with Christie's and say, well, let's do something with this. It's going to become the first purely digital auction that an important major auction house, which we only have three major auction houses in the States. That's Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips. We have many more, but these are the big ones. And, and Christie's went with it because the crypto movement has grown so much. They saw an opportunity to actually play with these people. And the piece sold for $69 million. And so it's there's wow. nothing tangible. There's yeah. nothing tangible. It's a bunch. And you can go on his website or anywhere and download the whole thing for free, but you don't have the NFT. And that's the thing. The NFT is what gives you ownership rights. And this particular move is going to be written in our history books. It's just it takes a bit for people to wrap their heads around this because it's purely digital. But we are living in a world that is purely digital. So 
let's think about it more in a symbolic way, if you want, that you do have an asset that is not physical, but it is, exists someplace in, on the blockchain and it gives you transferable rights. And this particular one, I'm sure if they want to sell it tomorrow for 200 million bucks, they could. Crazy. It's a wild <laughs> world we live in. Those things wow. are going for. Wow. It is. Well, Marit, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and your journey. We loved having you. And we'll make sure that we get your book when it's available. <laughs> and hey, listeners, if you haven't if you haven't done so yet, check out right. that book. It's a good one. All right. So thank you so much. Thank You've been you. Listening guys. to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Offered through Securities America Incorporated, member of FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is a investment advisor representative with Securities America Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities America Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities America Advisors or Securities America Incorporated. Securities America Advisors, Securities America Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party source information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of LinkedIn Incorporated or Microsoft Corporation. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.